What were the factors underlying the re-election of Benjamin Netanyahu as Prime Minister of Israel? Was there a credible alternative? What message has the Israeli government sent to the people of Palestine and the international community through this election and the operations from last summer's siege on Gaza? How can the Israeli apartheid be overturned? What are the tactics being employed against Palestine's solidarity activism and boycott divestment sanctions campaigns? What is preventing the media from adequately reporting on the Israel-Palestine situation? On this week's Global Research News Hour, following a historic Israeli election, we get perspectives from Professor James Petrus of Binghamton University, Bruce Cates, co-founder and president of Palestinian and Jewish Unity, and from Dr. Jeff Halper of the Israel Co Coalition Against House Demolitions. On today's program, the Netanyahu victory. Is there a path to a just peace? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 27, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Europe and the U.S. are societies built on constant aggression towards neighbors. Aggression like that is staved by building up a credible, large counterforce of allies and blocs, which causes fear of defeat and de-escalation, your typical European balance of forces approach. Russia is a defensive empire. That is, most wars or series of wars were not started by Russians, but by enemies attacking or massing on Russia's borders. After 800 years of almost non-stop aggression by Europeans, Russia does not tolerate any enemy massing on her borders in what appears as a preparation for invasion or the creation of large-scale basing areas as would be a U.S. neocon-dominated Ukraine. This is also coupled with the Russian approach of not abandoning Russians, ethnic or cultural, and allies as opposed to Anglo society or backstabbing allies when the opportunity to earn exists is a prized skill. That comes from the article, American Politicians Are Fools, Getting Russia Wrong All the Way to War, by Matt Rodina, posted March 26th, originally appearing on Matt Rodina's blog. Yesterday, in a vote that largely slid under the radar, the House of Representatives passed a resolution urging Obama to send lethal aid to Ukraine, providing offensive, not just defensive weapons to the Ukraine army, the same insolvent, hyperinflating Ukraine, which, with a CAA-3-CC credit rating, 
last week started preparations to issue sovereign debt with a U.S. guarantee, in essence making it a part of the United States, something the U.S. previously did as a favor to Egypt before the Muslim Brotherhood puppet regime was swept from power by the local army. The resolution passed with broad bipartisan support by a count of 348 to 48. According to DW, the measure urges Obama to provide Ukraine with lethal defensive weapon systems that would better enable Ukraine to defend its territory from, quote, the unprovoked and continuing aggression of the Russian Federation, unquote. So the only question is how Russia will respond to this escalation. According to RT, Washington's decision to supply Ukraine with ammunition and weapons would explode the whole situation in eastern Ukraine and Russia would be forced to respond appropriately. Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov said at the end of February. It would be a major blow to the Minsk agreements and would explode the whole situation, Task quoted Ryabkov as saying. That's from the article, U.S. House votes 348 to 48 to arm Ukraine. Russia warns lethal aid will explode the whole situation. By Tyler Durden, posted March 26th, originally appearing at Zero Hedge. The main victims of the U.S. assassination policy are women, children, village elders, weddings, funerals, and occasionally U.S. soldiers mistaken for Taliban by U.S. surveillance operating with the visual acuity of the definition of legal blindness. Coburn tells the story of how the human element has been displaced by remote control killing guided by misinterpretation of unclear images on screens collected by surveillance drones and sensors thousands of miles away. Coburn shows that the all-seeing drone surveillance system is an operational failure, but is supported by defense contractors because of its high profitability, and by the military brass because general officers, with the exception of General Paul Van Ripper, are brainwashed in the belief that the revolution in military affairs means that high-tech devices replace the human element. Coburn demonstrates that this belief is immune to all evidence to the contrary. The U.S. military has now reached the point that Secretary of Defense Hagel deactivated both the A-10 close support fighter and the U-2 spy plane in favor of the operationally failed unmanned Global Hawk system. That comes from the article, How the U.S. Government and U.S. Military Became Murder, Inc. by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted March 26th, originally appearing at paulcraigroberts.org. Germany's Angela Merkel and France's François Hollande, as well as several other EU leaders, wanted the war to end at this point, but America's Barack Obama still did not. He wanted yet another, third round of the war, just as did Yatsenyuk and the other hardline anti-Russians. So, Merkel and Hollande decided to fly to Moscow and negotiate on their own with Russia's Vladimir Putin, and on February 7th they announced agreement on a plan with or without the U.S. president. Though Obama had previously said that he would send weapons to Ukraine, he now said that he would place on hold his decision about sending weapons so as not to obstruct the efforts of those EU leaders, not embarrass and antagonize leaders whose cooperation he was seeking. The, a peace summit was then held at Minsk on February 11th, attended by Merkel, Hollande, Putin, and Poroshenko, and it resulted in the signing of a new package of peacemaking measures called Minsk II on February 12th. The big question since then has been whether the United States would press on with its arming of Ukraine.
That comes from the article, Obama now sides with Poroshenko and the European Union to end Ukraine's war, by Eric Zeus, posted March 26th. A study by Brown University's Watson Institute for International Studies says the Iraq war costs could exceed $6 trillion when interest payments to the banks are taken into account. This is nothing new but has been going on for thousands of years. As a Cambridge University Press treatise on ancient Athens notes, financing wars is expensive business and the scope for initiative was regularly extended by borrowing. So wars have been a huge and regular way for banks to create debt for kings and presidents who want to try to expand their empires. That was from the article Bankers Hate Peace, All Wars Are Bankers' Wars, by Washington's blog, posted March 26th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On Tuesday, March 17th, Israelis went to the polls to elect their representatives in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. With an election turnout of 72.3%, the incumbent party, Likud, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, emerged triumphant with 23.4% of the vote and 30 seats. During the campaign, while the opposition coalition known as the Zionist Union focused on economic and social incentives, such as lowering the costs of health care, education, and basic goods, and providing more affordable housing, Likud's strategy seemed to center on tough talk against Iran, reiterated at a joint session of the United States Congress, as well as an outright rejection of a Palestinian state, if elected. Why did the Israeli people vote the way they did? Joining me right now is Professor James Petrus. He is Bartle Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Binghamton University, a frequent tri- contributor to the Global Research website, and the author of 60 books. And he's also the author of the article, The Roots of Netanyahu's Electoral Victory, Colonial Expansion and Fascist Ideology. So... Uh, James Petrus, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm very pleased to participate in your program. Now, uh, with reference to your recent article, were you surprised at all by the results? No, uh, in fact, uh, it pretty much figured uh, out to be the way it turned out, uh, largely because one has to take account of the... uh, tremendous amount of commitment that uh, Netanyahu has for the uh, Jewish settlers and colonists of Palestinian uh, land. Uh, I think that's the key. Uh, There have been over 650,000 Jewish households which have settled on uh, Palestinian-occupied land in East Jerusalem. And I think this is a huge vote for uh, Netanyahu because he has given every indication that he's not going to uh, in any way jeopardize these settlers. In no way is he going to agree 
as he stated in his campaign, to any kind of solution which infringes upon the uh, settlements. Uh, his contribution to these uh, settlers is enormous, apart from the uh, huge subsidies they get uh, low-cost housing, air conditioning, swimming pools, community centers, uh, Jews-only roads, uh, and uh, he's constantly expanding. So it's not only the uh, 650,000 uh, Jewish colonialists, but also the promise of more. He he uh, spends over $250 million a year expanding and improving uh, these settlements on uh, Palestinian land. If you look at the ex uh, spending of the uh, Israeli state under Netanyahu, he spends uh, $1,400 per settler who establishes a new outpost. Uh, he spends $900 for every Israeli in the occupied territories or in East Jerusalem, and only 400 on uh, on Israeli Jews in Tel Aviv. So there's a tremendous skewer in the budget toward settlers, and they are very much uh, strong supporters of uh, Netanyahu because he not only uh, promotes them, finances them, but also protects them. Whenever they grab uh, an is, uh, a Palestinian land, he sends the so-called Israeli Defense Force uh, in to make sure that the uh, dispossessed Palestinians uh, in no way can resist. And they use live ammunition at jailings, arrests, torture of anybody that engages any kind of consequential resistance activity. So for many Israelis, uh, particularly those who have benefited or promised to benefit in the future, and he solves the problem of uh, class divisions because uh, all of this settlement is done at the expense of the Palestinians and the Jewish-Israeli plutocrats, real estate speculators, and uh, and landlords don't have to face uh, mass pressure. If they do, they have the escape valve of sending them into Palestinian areas and having high-rise condos or, uh, or uh, comfortable, affluent houses and communities set up for them. So what you're talking about is the uh, the in these individual the Israeli population by and large has an appetite for uh, colonizing Palestinian lands, and that appetite crosses all partisan or ideological divides. Yes, and it's not just an appetite. It's, it's uh, a way of securing low-cost housing in a, in, uh, faced with a housing bubble in, in Israel, which has priced out a lot of lower-class, lower-middle-class, and even middle-class uh, Jewish Israelis, uh, this is a godsend. They, uh, all they have to do is kick out the Palestinians, seize their olive fields, chop down the trees, and, uh, and chase the shepherds away. Uh, and then uh, they got land, they got uh, property, and it's going to be exclusively Jewish because that's all Israel finances in the uh, 
in these uh, settlements. Professor Petrus, when Benjamin Netanyahu uh, famously went to the uh, the House of Representatives, uh, went to Washington and, and gave his talk, and uh, you know caused a lot of uh, embarrassment for the the Democrats. Was that a message to the international community, or was it a message to the Israeli population? Well, first of all, let's try to understand how uh, a a country which is uh, rated 35th in the world and and a president who has violated every human rights law gets invited to a joint session of Congress, and it has nothing to do with the the mediocrity of the political who's speaking, and Netanyahu is more akin to a barroom lecturer. Uh, the reason he's there is because of the power of the Zionist power configuration. Uh, their influence over U.S. Congress is notorious. Uh, the uh, millionaire and billionaire Zionists uh, contribute about 50 to 60 percent of their campaign funding. So they are essentially pawns of the uh, Zionist power configuration. When they give the word to Congress, the Congress leaders jump. That's why they jumped 40 times uh, giving him uh, standing ovations when, when he spoke, Netanyahu, saying, rolling out all the cliches about uh, Iranian threats, uh, Iranian nuclear weapons program, none of which he substantiates, none of of which uh, can be substantiated, but which guides congressional policy. As soon as he left, uh, a majority of Republican congressmen sent a letter to uh, out to the public saying, under no conditions will they uphold any uh, negotiated settlement between the United States and the uh, five other uh, supporters of uh, a nuclear understanding with Iran. And that letter was practically written by the American-Israel Political Action Committee. So this is the formidable factor. Without the uh, uh, Zionist power configuration, what some people call the Israeli lobby, which is more than a lobby, uh, the, the, the reason that... Uh, Israel has so much power in the United States isn't for any other reason but the fact that they have enormous leverage in the U.S. political system and also a very strong influence in the mass media. Hmm. Now, Professor Petrus, the, uh, a very key uh, point that he raised was this idea of uh, saying no to a two-state solution. And you infer from well, that. Well, I think that's evident to uh, anyone that studied the, the so-called peace process. At every point, Israel has uh, re- rejected any kind of uh, settlement uh, over decades now. It's a farce. Uh, as I mentioned, there's 650,000 uh, Jewish settlers on Palestinian land. They're turning Palestinian. Uh, territory into little Batustans, and uh, it's not viable to talk about a two-state solution. And uh, facts on the ground speak to a purely a, a Jewish uh, country with uh, Palestinians as uh, as uh, uh, isolated territorial units that are surrounded by a growing sea of Jews only. 
uh, property holders, whether they're businesses or settlements or roads, etc. So I think the speech was a, uh, a, a, a sort of an uh, expression of what exists, and it tore the mask from Obama's claim that the viability of a two-state uh, and and uh, it's a message from Netanyahu to all the settlers that your land grab is permanent. We are going to back it. We are going to build more settlements, and we are building more settlements. And we're going to build high ri- more high-rises in East Jerusalem. We're going to evict more and more Palestinians who've been there for generations or centuries so I think the uh, statement that this, uh, he's opposed to a two-state solution is simply uh, saying what is existing and what continues to exist in fact. Mm. Now, as far as the uh, basically, you know, you're, you're, you have the the Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu. You know, effectively buying uh, buying votes with the the land grabs, but also uh, addressing fears. That I mean, in so far as he projects this no nonsense, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm you know I'm going to protect you from the terrorists or from the from Iran or or whatever. I mean, do you get the sense that there's a sort of a subconscious hold he has over the the population that uh, I don't think not so. I think it's the fact that they're getting something for nothing at the expense of the Palestinians. I don't think this fear fact. Nobody believes that nuclear armed Israel is threatened by uh, nuclear uh, free uh, Iran or any other country, especially since they uh, know that the. Uh, Israeli power configuration, the U.S. would drag the U.S. directly into any conflict. So I think the Iranian issue is a phony issue, and I think most knowledgeable Israelis uh, know that. As far as the Palestinians, is a, a, a people that is a, under thug attack every day, there are raids by the IDF into Palestinian territory, and they uh, evict Palestinians at the drop of a hat, destroy their houses, uproot their uh, livelihoods. Uh, they're no threat either. And I think most Israelis understand that they're amused and entertained during the uh, Gaza invasion where they effectively uh, bombed the Palestinians into the Stone Age. So what's the threat? The threat is, is a totally... Uh, imagined threat, and among the the Jews that believe it, it's a paranoid vision of of realities, and I think they need to go to a psychological clinic to get their heads examined. Well, what about with the opposition parties? I mean, were they not uh, speaking a little bit more? Except for the merits in the Arab list, all the parties in Israel are Jewish parties that stand by the land occupations that understand that there's no real peace process. It's just a continuing process of dispossession of the Palestinians. The so-called Zionist uh, Union opposition uh, supported everything that uh, Netanyahu said. They probably would have said it a little differently. They would have maintained perhaps the fiction of a two-state solution while they continued to uh, promote 
more land occupations and seizures. Uh, I, I think the the difference is a minuscule. I think uh, not 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 a single party objected uh, to his uh, belligerent attitude toward Iran and his speech at the uh, Congress. They, they just thought it was bad protocol that he should have consulted the president, consulted the Democrats before he stuck it to them. Mm. I'm wondering because, I mean, Israel isn't the only country that practices this form of settler colonialism. I mean, even, you know, Canada has the indigenous population and uh, there's been a lot of moves here to uh, essentially find ways of, of grabbing or uh, securing a lot of the the land and resources over the the backs of indigenous uh, the indigenous yes, peoples and we here is there condemn all of these uh, encroachments on indigenous people whether Palestinians or Indians just as we condemned the Lebensstrom the 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 Nazis uh, seizing uh, Slavic lands and turning them into uh, menial workers. So I, I think this business of uh, a, a colonial power of dispossessing pe- people is, is, a, is a, a general problem. And uh, I, I don't think anybody can say uh, that it's exclusively Israel. But that's beside the point. That The point is to condemn all these practices, whether, whether it was the British Empire dispossessing indigenous peoples uh, in in the uh, high heyday of the empire, the U.S. pioneers or the uh, Israelis uh, doing it uh, today to the Palestinians. It's unacceptable. So I'm just wondering then that um, if you know, Netanyahu has uh, essentially secured a, a winning strategy. Well, he has. If you, He's the longest-serving prime minister in Israeli history. They keep voting him in over and over again because he's doing what the Israeli masses want. The, the great majority of Israelis believe in what he's doing. Uh, they benefit from what he's doing. They have all the privileges and none of the obligations that go with the conquering power. Mm. So the in terms of fighting back uh, or resisting... Well, he's going to be prime minister till uh, what, 2020 now? Uh, he's been prime minister since 2009, and before that he was prime minister from 96, I think it was, at the 99... Uh, so he's got a message which unites Sephardics and uh, and uh, Ashkenazis, secular and religious, plutocrats, and uh, and scrambling uh, lower middle class uh, Jews. So he uh, he unif- he's a unifying factor among the squabbling factions in Israeli society. So in terms of. Uh pursuing justice, what would you say? Is boycott, divest, sanction maybe the only Absolutely. way? Absolutely. I think that's one of the main uh, uh, going movement, and it's growing over time. Uh, each day, there are trade unions, universities uh, across North America. There are boycotts by uh, construction companies and others. I think this is an extremely positive uh, Movement and uh, and it has provoked the ire of of uh, uh, Israel's fifth column in North America and Canada, Cutler and others uh, are trying to label it anti-Semitic, uh, but they're not very successful. And and when uh, when you look around, there are more and more people speaking out, even though 
uh, the uh, Israeli supporters are very vindictive and, and take measures to uh, punish people. They uh, call their employers and label them anti-Semites. Uh, they try to get them, uh, their organizations uh, closed out of universities. Uh, they engage in uh, thug thuggish behavior on phone calls and threats to people who have been active. Uh, I think it's a uh, it's a it's a very dangerous operation, and it usurps uh, the rights of electorates to uh, to vote their own conscience. Okay, well, uh, Professor Petrus, uh, I really want to thank you for those insights. And uh... I just want to say one thing for for your audience, Please. and that is that they shouldn't feel inhibited by the uh, repressive behavior. In particular, they should urge uh, academics at York and Toronto and Alberta to speak out and not bury this issue. One of the uh, one of the reasons the uh, Israelis get the, what they want with Hopper and Trudeau and others is because of leftist intellectuals keeping their mouth shut. Some of them criticize Israel, but they don't attack the forces in their own community, which enables Israel to get away with their crimes. And I, I would urge the listeners, academics, professors, and others that are listening in to speak up and not, uh, and not uh, betray their beliefs. We've been speaking with Professor James Petrus, Bartle Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Binghamton University and a frequent contributor to the Global Research website. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Following up on the subject of Palestine solidarity actions here in Canada, a few days before the Israeli elections, there was a vote at Montreal's McGill University put forward by the student group Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights McGill. The resolution called on the campus to, quote, divest and refrain from investing in companies that pose social injury by contributing to the continuation and profitability of the illegal occupation of the Palestinian territories, unquote. Previous to that vote, Justin Trudeau, Liberal Party leader and would-be Prime Minister of Canada, expressed opposition to the BDS movement with a tweet which read, quote, The BDS movement, like Israeli Apartheid Week, has no place on Canadian campuses. As a McGill University alum, I'm disappointed, unquote. The vote on divestment failed by a vote of 276 to 212 against. The Palestine Solidarity Movement has no shortages of challenges and obstacles before it. To offer some insights into the struggles facing these solidarity activists and organizers is Bruce Cates. He is a founding member and acting president of Palestinian and Jew Jewish Unity, a Montreal human rights organization made up of activists from the Jewish and Palestinian communities. So, uh, Bruce, Bruce Cates, uh, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you. Do you want to just say something briefly about how your group came together and uh, what its main focus is? Well, uh, the, the Palestinian Jewish Unity, which is uh, often referred to as PAJU, uh, 
was founded in November of uh, 2000, we basically following the, the beginning of the uh, the Second Intifada, and the uh, idea was uh, to uh, bring together uh, not only uh, people from the, the Jewish community and uh, Palestinian community in Montreal, but also um, uh, everybody, anybody and everybody uh, who supported uh, the... Uh, uh, the uh, legitimate uh, claims of Palestinian uh, people for uh, emancipation and for uh, equality before the law in uh, yeah, on their land, uh, and um, basically we we began with uh, a boycott uh, uh, vigil. Uh, well, it wasn't a boycott immediately; it became one later, but. A, a vigil before the uh, Israeli consulate uh, in Montreal, which lasted for seven years, uh, every Friday from uh, noon to 1 p.m., uh, went from 2001 to 2008 until the uh, Israeli consulate moved from where it was at the corner of Peel and uh, René Lévesque streets in, uh, in Montreal uh, to quieter quarters, and we then moved <coughs> over... Uh, to uh, uh, undertake, uh, after the, the uh, Palestinian Civil Society uh, made a call for a boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel as being the only peaceful means of uh, of uh, bringing about a, uh, a peaceful and uh, long-lasting re- uh, resolution of uh, the conflict, uh, we moved our vigil, which became a boycott vigil, in front of the uh, Indigo Bookstore uh, on uh, St. Catherine Street near McGill College Avenue, uh, Indigo Chapters. Uh, the reason that we uh, we launched uh, that we joined that boycott <coughs> was um, uh, the fact that uh, Indigo Chapters CEO Heather Reisman had uh, put forward and uh, uh, a program which still exists called uh, HESEG H E S E G or the the Lone Soldier uh, program, which is uh, one that incites uh, young uh, people, especially young Jews, to enroll in uh, the Israeli army, which is an occupation army, in exchange for educational and social benefits in uh, in uh, Israel. And uh, we've been there uh, every Friday from noon to one uh, since 2008, and we're still there, and we're, uh, at, we ask... Uh, uh, all of those people who normally would uh, buy articles at Indigo Chapters to not to uh, not to do that anymore. Find al- alternate uh, bookstores, uh, uh, alternate uh, stores that uh, um, sell stationery, etc. Now, over the course of the uh, the decade or so that you've been active, what kinds of of pushback have you experienced? Oh well, uh, you know the the um, the Zionist uh, uh, lobby or pro-Israel. I like to call it the pro-Israel lobby because um, it makes it clearer. People are not uh, really one hundred percent clear on what Zionism is, so let's just call it the pro-Israel lobby. Uh, it's very very well organized. Um, um, uh, very well to do in terms of its uh, funding, uh, and so at one point when we first started, uh, uh, we were seen as uh, 
you know, just uh, radicals blowing off steam, and uh, uh, there was really uh, no uh, real opposition or uh, voice to counter a lot of the misinformation that was coming from the the, the pro-Israel quarter. Uh, And with time, um, I think that uh, we've played a role along with other uh, other groups like uh, uh, Independent Jewish Voices, um, the Coalition for Justice and Peace in Palestine, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, uh, and other uh, human rights groups here, like Tadamon is another one. Uh, we've, uh, <clears throat> I think, gone a long way in educating the public on what was uh, really going on um, on the ground um, in Israel. Uh, and um, it's no longer uh, a disputed point as to whether or not Israel is an apartheid state. It's confirmed, and as a matter of fact, uh, basically uh, Benjamin Netanyahu confirmed that that much when uh, he stated uh uh, in order to get himself elected, what what uh, has always been the real case anyway is that he will that the, the government of Israel will never uh, allow the formation of an independent Palestinian state. Uh, not only that, but he also made it clear that uh, Arabs, Palestinian Israelis, if you like, are uh, to be considered second-class citizens. Now, that's a that's an apartheid state. And when you're dealing with apartheid, as was the case in in, uh, South Africa, when the apartheid regime reigned in South Africa, uh, the the only uh, peaceful uh, instrument and the only really um, efficient instrument for doing away with apartheid is the boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, movement. Now, it worked in the case of South Africa, and it will work and is working uh, in the case of uh, Israeli apartheid. And as a matter of fact, the what what the uh, the uh, Netanyahu victory in the uh, recent Israeli elections is actually uh, 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 lends to the momentum of the BDS uh, movement uh, worldwide, because there's um, uh, you know the mask is off and has been off for a while now. It's it's been off since Netanyahu took power about oh, about eight, nine years ago. Um, <clears throat> now, if the, the Zionist Union had won the election, well, they would have been able to, uh, again, uh, mask the colonization uh, better. Uh, there would have been, the uh, again, the discourse of uh, the, the two-state solution, which I can tell you is logistically impossible uh, at the present moment. I can't see that ever happening under the current conditions where, where the, uh, the Palestinians virtually have uh, no land left to them. Uh, they have about 7% left of the of the 22% that existed uh, of occupied territory in 1967 when the, uh, Israel drew the, the green line uh, and uh, occupied uh, all of the West Bank and, uh, and Gaza. Um, and basically, uh, uh, I was uh, in uh, the occupied territories in 2010. And when you travel there, what you what you understand is that it's like uh, a Swiss cheese, where uh, the holes uh, in, uh, in in the cheese represent uh, Palestinian enclaves, and the solid cheese is is all uh, land that's been expropriated by Israel now, along with their 
separation wall, which is a monstrosity, uh, and the um, checkpoints, uh, the Palestinians there have uh, uh, absolutely no freedom of circulation, uh, no control over anything. Uh, And you can't build an independent uh, state on on that basis. So basically today, uh, on March the 26th, 2015, uh, there's no point in talking about uh, a two-state solution. There won't be one. Uh, and um, uh, Netanyahu has said as much. So uh, basically, if you're going to talk about a, a resolution, it has to be based on the idea of uh, one binational state, whether it's a federated state, whatever form that state would take. Um, so when you hear a politician like Justin Trudeau talk about... Uh, BDS, a boycott, divestment, and sanctions, as as being um, somehow not legitimate and shouldn't be talked about on on Canadian campuses. Um, basically, you can just wipe that uh, remark away with the, uh, uh, the the back of one's hand as as coming from uh, uh, coming from a, a, a um, what I would refer to as a singularly unimpressive politician who is concerned only with uh, with survey polls and uh, whatever happens to be the fashion uh, of the day. Uh, I would have been surprised if he had said uh, the opposite. And, and by him saying that as an alumnus, uh, he doesn't think that uh, that should be uh, d- discussed uh, or debated or voted on on, uh, uh, on the McGill campus. Um, uh, qu- quite frankly, is uh, is uh, not surprising to me, and uh, is a re- reflection of uh, of a run of the mill politician who basically turns out the same the same old same old. And basically, there's nothing to to uh, distinguish what he said on the subject from what, uh, say, uh, Stephen Harper would say. The prime minister. Uh, yeah, so uh I mean I I think basically that can that can be uh, simply waved away. He's simply uh uh electioneering and uh, he doesn't want to ruffle any feathers. I I think you know if if we want to take a uh a, a sort of a proper perspective on the issue, we should go back to uh the question of BDS and uh, the BDS movement against uh, South African apartheid and if people may remember that at the outset uh, Brian Mulroney was firmly uh, opposed to uh, the notion of uh, a boycott uh, campaign against uh, South Africa. Uh, he changed his mind when he saw the groundswell of uh, popular support for sanctions and for boycott against uh, South Africa. And uh, the movement uh, became so powerful that uh, politicians like uh, Brian Mulroney uh, suddenly jumped on the bandwagon and uh, pinned medals on themselves and said that we're all in favor of um, uh, of uh, democracy in South Africa. Nelson Mandela, who had been uh, been on their t- uh, lists of uh, terrorists, uh, was uh, suddenly became uh, legitimate. Uh, although he'd always been legitimate, you know, in the in the eyes of the people who knew what he what he represented, what he really was. So uh, someone like uh, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, will just jump on the bandwagon uh, when the wind changes direction. So uh, whatever comments he's he's had to make about 
the um, the vote at McGill University, uh, in my eyes, has no legitimacy whatsoever. Okay, well, Bruce Cates, I think we'll close it there. Is there a resource on the web that uh, you'd like to direct our listeners to before we close? Yes, I would. Um, uh, if they they look up BDS Quebec, BDS Quebec uh, has a an excellent website. Uh, and I would uh, I would suggest that they they go to that one. They can also go to to our uh, Paju website, which is www.pajumontreal.org, and Paju Montreal is all one word. Okay, Bruce Cates is a founding member and acting president of Palestinian and Jewish Unity, a Mount Montreal based human rights organization made up of activists from the Jewish and Palestinian communities. Thank you for joining us, Bruce. Thank you very much. As reported on the Global Research News Hour several weeks ago, Jeff Halper came to visit a number of communities across Canada. He is an American-born anthropologist and political activist and co-founder and director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. I got a chance to interview him shortly during his visit to Winnipeg. We discussed his work, the recent assault on Gaza, and the mainstream media's distortion of the Middle East conflict. Jeff Halper is the head of the uh, Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. So, um, Dr. Halper, wel- Halper, welcome. Uh, I was wondering if you would wanted to uh, talk, I mean, you just gave in this presentation one example of a house demolition. I'm wondering if there are any others that really stick out in your mind uh, that, that really perhaps uh, haunt you or otherwise reinforce your commitment to this cause. Well, you know, there's been 48,000 house demolitions, so there's a lot. You know, um, sometimes it's funny, you know, sometimes you don't know to feel more sorry for a rich family or a poor family. You know, you go out and you go in the desert, in the middle of the West Bank, where it's isolated, barren, you know, windswept, and there's some poor Bedouin encampment, people with a few sheep and goats, and living in tents or living in tin shacks, and here comes the Israeli army and smashes the encampment and demolishes it. And, you know, you feel, you know, where are these people going to go? And then on the other hand, you go to, uh, it could be a part of Jerusalem, it could be uh, in another city of the West Bank, a town, and, you know, here's a guy that spent uh, 50 years in New York City, a Palestinian, had a supermarket, you know, and lived in Brooklyn and uh, raised a lot, you know, made money, you know, retired back to Palestine at the age of 65 or 70, built a beautiful house on his family's land, you know, a wonderful, beautiful villa, and here come the Israeli bulldozers and demolish it. You know, you feel just as heartbroken for him 
as you do for the for the better one. Every every house is uh, is a tragedy. The kids are crying. The women are wailing. The men are dazed. Um, it's it's like I say. It's a trauma that families never really get over. Now we have uh, we there's been this uh, a ten year long uh, boycott, divest, sanctions campaign, and of course there is that very. Uh, the, the assault on Gaza last summer, and I'm wondering if, as time goes by, if you're seeing the actions on the ground heat up even more, or uh, whether it's out of desperation or something else, or are you uh, seeing some sort of uh, positive signs? Uh, what's your take on these recent, any recent changes? Well, Israel's basically mopping up. It feels it's won, it's over. And uh, Gaza, or what's happening in uh, the summer, you know, the assault on Gaza, or military assaults in the West Bank are simply mopping up operations. I think Israel's message to the Palestinians this summer, this last summer, is forget negotiations, forget a two-state solution. You're not a side. You're not a people with rights. You're inmates. And you have three options, you Arabs because we don't even call them Palestinians. We don't recognize them as a national group. You Arabs have three options. You can submit to us, live as Arabs in our Jewish country, but just as Arabs, not as Palestinians. And shut up and live your lives and, uh, and we'll let you stay by sufferance, not by right. Or you leave. If you don't like that, get out. Or you die. If you resist, you die. And that was the message, I think, this summer. And that's the stark set of options that Palestinians are, are confronted with. And that's the thrust of Israeli policy through the West Bank and Gaza, is mopping up, either making them submit or leave or die. Curious to know, last question, curious to know your, your thoughts about the way media is covering the conflict. Of course, this is an independent community radio station. Uh, that thrives on listener support, but I'm, I'm sure you're aware of a lot of the mainstream reporting on the conflict, and uh, based on what you've observed, and you've probably seen a fair amount of distortion, is there anything you can comment on the uh, the difference between, uh, I guess, community and mainstream reporting in terms of their authentic depictions of the, uh, of the uh, region of the conflict? Well, of course, one difference is that much of community-based radio is willing to listen and give me actually a, a platform. It's, I very seldom get into mainstream media, certainly not into the national media. Uh, and so our voices, the voices of, uh, of uh, dissenters in Israel, the voices of the Palestinians certainly aren't heard. Um, but in addition to that, what I've said tonight is that, you know, it takes a while to explain uh, what Israel's doing, how it's doing it, the whole mechanisms, what happens to Palestinians, what Israel's intentions are. And even on community radio, you don't usually have that space. You know, you get 10 minutes, 50, maybe a half an hour, and, um, and uh, I've gotten good at it, <laughs> making it as concise as I can. But here, you know, on one leg, going really fast, you know, in an hour, I hardly covered so, so our problem is that, you know, the Israeli case can be made very short, very succinct. You know, we're a Western democracy fighting terrorism, and that's it. And deconstructing that 
and really saying not only what Israel's doing and how it's doing it, what occupation is, but what's the solution? How do we get out of this? Takes so much time that even community radio doesn't cover us <laughs> adequately, and and that's a, a disadvantage that we always face. That was Jeff Halper, founder and director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. On the topic of boycott divestment sanction, there are, unlike politicians like Justin Trudeau and Stephen Harper, a number of high-profile figures on the international stage who do support the BDS movement. One of those is Roger Waters, former frontman for the supergroup Pink Floyd. Waters is a long-standing supporter of the Palestinian campaign to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel. His support for BDS came after Palestinians appealed to him to cancel a concert in Tel Aviv, an appeal which he heeded. Here is his reworking of the classic song, We Shall Overcome, from 2010, dedicated to ending the blockade on Palestine. I do believe 
and the truth will set us free. The truth will set us free. Truth will set us all free. One last item. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East is sponsoring a speaking tour by Gideon Levy. Gideon Levy is an Israeli author and a journalist with Haaretz since 1982. His talk is entitled Israeli Elections, What Next for Israel-Palestine? Levy is a strong critic of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians and a strong supporter of the boycott of Israel. Levy has also questioned the viability of the two-state solution. He speaks in Calgary... Friday, March 27th at 7 p.m. in the Calgary Central Library at 616 McLeod Trail, Southeast. On Saturday, March 28th, he speaks in Victoria, B.C. at the David Lamb Auditorium in the McLaurin Building at the University of Victoria. And on Sunday, March 29th, he speaks in Vancouver, B.C. at Canadian Memorial United Church at 1825 West 16th Avenue. Go to cjpme.org for more information about the tour. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.